0: Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, it's a great pleasure to introduce you to Alex Billick from Silvacom. Alex, how are you doing? Doing very well, Kevin. I really appreciate you having me on the show here. Yeah, for sure. I'm pumped to have this conversation with you. We were joking at the start how we're both rocking our microphones hidden away, <laughs> so we could have that voice, that deep radio voice. I promised I wouldn't do it. I just did. So how embarrassing is that? But hey, we saw each other in Toronto what uh two weeks ago or, or something of that. Yeah, nature? I
1: mean that was uh that was the first in-person event since before COVID. Uh OFIA and then Cribe, and literally OFIA was the event right before COVID kicked off for me. So it was sort of bookends of uh, pre and post COVID. It was really nice to see people.
0: Yeah. So for our global listeners who are saying, oh yeah, OFIA, OFIA is what for those folks?
1: Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, Ontario Forest Industries Association. So it was. Uh, it's a meeting of forest industry. So I was giving a talk there on uh, drone technology, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then, uh, and then the CRIBE next for was talking about uh, it, it was sort of funny. Chris made a, a tongue-in-cheek joke that all of the forest inventory solutions folks in
0: the province were in the room, and we kind of were. It was <laughs> you know? for sure, for sure, and, and like we were all clustered, right? It's almost like yeah. this geographic clustering algorithm in our uh, yep. in our DNA that merged us all together. And <laughs> in, in, in size, yeah, I agree, man. That was like awesome. I think that was my second in-person event, uh, and it's just nice, right, just to see people and yep. even like i don't know what it is fist pump elbow pump handshake hug kiss i don't know what the protocol is this but it was just nice it was like just so reinvigorating for the soul so yeah it was awesome to see you there you gave some talks and we'll we'll get into that so customary with a digital forester podcast i always ask people what's your journey how i think people are going to be liking this story because again it's, it's, it's like your dark- boots on the ground or right? <laughs> is so about it started that. started
1: on a dark and stormy night, you know, uh, no, no, not quite that, but it was, uh, quite, uh, quite the journey, honestly. So if you asked me in high school, what did I want to be? The answer would have been engineer or eye doctor. And up until I was 17, that was the answer. And then, um, they, I heard over the announcements, this, you know, you could apply for the summer job was called the Ontario Ranger program. And so I threw an application into that and happened to get picked. And so for those that don't know, this was a program that ran in Ontario for quite a number of years. I want to say 50 plus years um, where in your 17th birth year, it was by birth year you applied and you could be picked to go live in a ranger camp for two months. So I was taken out of Southern Ontario, grew up in Southern Ontario. Didn't know what forestry was. A forester was a Subaru, right? That's always been our marketing problem still is today. Um, But went up and lived in Northern Algonquin park and so just doing tree um, portage clearing, all that sort of stuff. you lived in a camp with all guys uh, all the same age and we started to learn about forest management and I realized well, this is pretty cool. this sounds really interesting. And the person that had spoken uh, mentioned they went to Lakehead University I said which university never heard of that one. Um, so did the did the look into that and that winter flew up to do a tour and the rest is history signed up for forestry uh-huh. and changed changed paths completely. And it's really funny because earlier this week, I was doing drone training with the steep rock uh, crew there, the environmental crew monitoring the mine there. And the one girl was at the girls camp that visited our camp 18 years ago. No, uh, kidding. literally, literally. Yeah. We were wow. talking and she said, yeah, I was in Rangers and that got me into this and I said, no way. What year? And she said, I said which camp did you go to? And we, yeah, we visited Crazy. this chaos camp. It was such a weird serendipitous moment. 18 years later that uh yeah we both ended up in forestry environmental management and there's a lot of those stories throughout the industry of yeah and unfortunately that program doesn't exist anymore they they canceled it and moved it to stewardship where you're home every night this took you out of your environment it put you in the middle of nowhere and said welcome to forestry you're going to learn some skills you learned you know canoeing you learn basic trail maintenance stuff but you learned about the industry as well and it was it was a huge feeder program i think and it's a big loss for our industry
0: yeah no that's amazing to hear right and and those programs are instrumental at that young age and and even I'm, i'm curious to know your thoughts like when we think about that in a broader conversation piece around just universities that have a forestry program right you got ubc uh lakehead umb i I think ufa still has one but uft kind of as you said it merged what what do you think what do you think how did that come to be and and these rager programs not getting funded is it public perception or maybe lack of awareness or or foresters or subarus and just just kind of plow through the snow and don't beat their chest and toot their horn what do you what do you think happened
1: i i think we're really bad at messaging honestly that's improved in the last couple years but as a profession we've been very humble and that doesn't always serve us well when we operate on such a social license. And so programs like that, you know, so growing up in Southern Ontario, I lived on the mountain bike trails. I lived out in the woods, but didn't know what forest management was. It just wasn't in the, in the vernacular at all. And so that program opened my eyes to it. And then I could share that with other people. Um, it's also a bit of a marketing thing. So the program at Lakehead changed to natural resource management and saw a huge spike in numbers again, because forestry didn't translate to kids looking into programs so it is a bit of a branding problem but i always joke saying you know you google doctors you see people engineers you see people google Google forester you see subaru and that's always been our core challenge i think and that is changing and uh, you know like you're addressing here digital forestry and technology when you start talking to young people and explaining the fact that oh you're really into technology and video games you want to be a full-time drone pilot their eyes just go like what are you talking about that's a career path and it's like yeah it absolutely is like there are there are students that i've taught previously that are now full-time drone
0: pilots and it's just wild to think that that's a career yeah, it's amazing, right? And they're probably thinking, what? I, I thought it was the sumo wrestler posing yeah. on the Subaru hood of the truck. That's a forcer, right? And yeah. so this is probably dating us, right? Some people are like, what are these guys talking about? Like sumo wrestler on a Subaru? I'm like, they're really funny commercials. So if you get a chance to YouTube that, you'll fall over uh, laughing. Trust me, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll give you five bucks if you're not on the ground laughing to our listeners after you watch them. So so no connections in, in the family to force you. So it's really that ranger well, camp that set you off?
1: So my, my grandfather, when he came over from Ukraine, uh, was a lumberjack in Capascasing, actually. So he, right. he worked in the woods from that side of things, but not in any kind of manager role. That was in the cut and stack, you know, uh, that kind of a role and then moved down to be a welder. So growing up around him, learned learned the trades from him in, in my summers, but not, that didn't feed into the forestry side. I learned the IT side of things from my father, who's more that that side of... You know, technology bringing old computers home that it could rip apart. So I learned that. And that's why I was kind of focused on engineering. And I'm sure it probably shocked and scared my parents when I said, yeah, that engineering thing. No, I'm interested in forestry now. They probably thought, what? You had a, you know, you had a career uh, lined up and now
0: obviously it's worked out. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure your grandfather probably says like, Alex, you're not a real forester back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got all of that stuff. Of course. Yeah, this is it
1: was all cut and split by hand. And, uh, you know, hearing the stories from the woods and, uh, and what they went through, it was pretty, it it was formulative for sure to respect where they came from. And it was really cool going back to cap uh, for a number of training things to be able to see and walk the same ground, you know, that many years later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so right now you work for Silvacom. Uh, they're headquartered yep. in Edmonton, Alberta. You're on the Thunder Bay, Ontario arm. I believe yep. you'll have to correct me. Title is Force Inventory Innovation Manager.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's a, it's a mouthful. Um, and where that came from, I guess, is uh, so Silvacom, we've got staff uh, coast to coast now, actually. So New Brunswick to, cool. to BC, uh, between 110, 120 employees across the board. Uh, and our biggest year in terms of hiring was last year. I mean, that's the thing with COVID and remote work and everything else is in technology. In, in this technology interface with forestry, there's been a ton of growth. Um, so we've been we've been doing a lot of hiring. My title comes from the project that I was initially brought in from, which was the Forest Inventory Innovation Project. Um, alberta looking at basically their the alberta vegetation inventory system that's their the forest inventory program and saying what is the opportunity for change within this um and so they needed someone that understood forest inventory but wasn't connected to anyone in alberta so there would be no sort of you know you know the politics is always half of the battle with this stuff so you're the fresh meat that was the yeah it was sort of the outside guru uh my my friend always jokes and calls me a remote sensei and I'm just going to embrace that title, you know, uh, nice. um, and say, you know, like a, re- understand remote sensing, but don't necessarily understand the politics of the landscape. So can ask the truly ignorant questions that are need to be asked sometimes, but aren't loaded with the, the, the background uh, knowledge that might come from there. So it was, it was a cool role to go in and sort of spearhead. It was challenging to have to do it remotely, by and large so a number of forest industry partners as well as other inventory solution partners so we had uh, you know Greenlink, Timberline, and Foresight all at the technical advisory table yeah and it was basically looking at and saying uh, I did a background um, literature review on the inventory program in Alberta and if you looked at inventory in Alberta through that lens It looked quite old, which wasn't representative of how things were being done, but the the documentation when we started referenced grease pencils and writing on the back of air photos, and it just, it needed a refresh. And so we managed to affect in about 16 months of work, uh, the entire inventory standard has been revitalized now. So a new, new standard was just published in January of this year. And now you've got one PDF, it's not, you know, a series of memos and interpretations and everything else that's been boiled out of it. And, and that's what's needed to set us up for, okay, now we agree what the current state of inventory is, now what's the opportunity to move forward in things and what are the barriers to that movement so um, looking at other jurisdictions and the talk that you saw which I was, again, being a little tongue in cheek, calling ideas worth stealing is say that came from that project of let's look at other jurisdictions and see what's working and let's not reinvent the wheel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And, and obviously you're still alive. So as the uh, the new guy coming in, yeah, you either found your armor and shield <laughs> uh, or you made some friends, but uh, yeah, it's amazing to hear that come together. But before we maybe tap, tap into some of that work, how how did how did that come to be? Like I know you like again you studied forestry, you're doing that work, you're yep. doing some independent consulting work. So maybe for our listeners, share a bit of that background because I think you well, I know you embody you know the digital forester. But I, I think as I've been doing these podcasts, I believe there's a theme, a trend in the the type of people, the DNA, whether there's a trigger event, a superhero event, or whether it's <laughs> a parental thing that you just got kicked in the behind, or yes. Being in the bush and then getting lost and then realizing, I, hey, if I had a digital tool, so it'd be great. But but maybe tell us, fill in that gap there. Sure. Before you, yeah. To so out. the
1: origin story, right? You want the you, uh, you want the origin story? I yeah, got Batman it. Batman so, story. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, it was uh, during my master's. So you know, graduated 08, 09. So not the greatest time to be graduating into uh, anything forestry no related. Peak of the crash. And so I moved and did my master's and it was sponsored by uh, you know three companies all in the same, um, well, I say that it was Abitibi, Abitibi, Bowater and Resolute because they went into receivership while they were sponsoring my master's. But uh, Rick Groves, uh, who was an instrumental mentor for me, uh, was, the, was the forestry manager there. And he kept me going as a master's. And my sole job at the time was to take the brand new ADS-40 imagery that Ontario was flying for the inventory. And he said, I'm not going to get an inventory product from this for probably five years at least. I need this imagery to work for me today. So your job, figure it out. So he handed me piles of hard drives. There was no instructions. (laughs) And it was figure out how to make this useful for us. And so that was a a challenge to say the least. I'm sure you remember those days of the .sup socket set images and saying, how does this work and why won't it open? And so we we kind of all kit bashed our way through figuring out how to get this stuff to even open. And then, um, so what they did is they sponsored a lab that sat at the university so that the students would also have access to it. So it was a shared resource lab, but their contractors would come in and their contractors who were quite old school, um new air photos right we sort of went through this period of 3d photo 3d photo then landsat came out and everyone forgot that 3d was a thing that we used in forestry right. for a while but the contractors hadn't forgotten that and they said this is just the digital version of that and so i got a projector working that would do 3d and we could look at a screen together and start doing operational planning and it started with roads and we went from for their so anyone who's done road layout they're walking you know be done in two dimensional GIS and then they'd go to the field and they'd say well this isn't right it missed xyz and so I I took the numbers from their GPS paths for the last year they were walking 3.6 kilometers per kilometer of road laid out when they were doing primary road layout for like ripping things out walking back and forth. And by leveraging the 3D imagery, we dropped that down to 1.4 kilometers walk per kilometer of road laid out. And that was the real impetus of, okay, we're willing to put you know the four hours in the lab every two weeks because it's saving us so much time Absolutely. on the back end. And so it started there. And then they said, it'd be great if we could take this 3D stuff to the field. And iPads were you know early on the scene. And I said, oh, how do I get this to work? And uh, Alf, who's another big mentor and influence on me, um, you know, he, he said, well, you used to have the technology of red, blue 3D, figure out how to convert them to that. And so managed to hack my way through converting the images into a high resolution red, blue 3D spatial anaglyph. And I so see. you could use 50 cent glasses on your iPad or on a piece of printed paper, and still you leverage the 3D in the field. And that was the real like, okay, this is cool. Now, now we're Now we're taking the expensive, complicated setup and I can put it in the machine and the guy can be looking at it and seeing what he's in for in terms of timber development or crossings. That that I think is probably what really kickstarted it for me. And then when I graduated, uh, Resolute gave me the shot of, okay, now you can continue with this as a contractor. And basically I just had to, my role was to innovate, move the needle somehow, some way but I was allowed to operate completely outside of their internal organizational structure. So I was able to kind of chat with folks at different levels, but I was always working with folks that were boots on the ground, uh, doing all of the layout work or, or the machine operators themselves. And then we would get into larger planning meetings. They'd bring the ministry in and they'd all sit around and hash out looking at the same image. And it led to this, instead of this back and forth of emails for months, It would be, we're looking at the same image. We're talking the same language. Yeah. And that, that really solidified things for me. So yeah, 10 years of doing that and concurrently, and I still am teaching as a sessional. So I've been teaching remote sensing now. And I feel uh, old now, the fact that students have taught are now, you know, superintendents for companies. So it's like, okay, this is uh, (laughs) been at this a little while now
0: yeah yeah well i was just gonna joke for our listeners uh, so when alex talks about those anaglyph glasses like if you go to the movie theater and get them for 3d those are the fancy ones we're talking about oh, yeah. the paper ones old school old, old school, school red blue yeah. you know cereal yeah. box you Yeah, know yeah. like so, so for those who can't see us we are not white haired like yeah, elderly people like we're we're middle <laughs> age, so again probably being exactly. ourselves, but yeah, so very very cool. So why don't we jump into a bit of technology? So we kind of heard the words sure. drones, lidar, you know, you name it. I know you're doing all sorts of crazy cool stuff, but maybe let's start with with lidar. I know at this um, next four this Crib event, so yeah, you presented on this and it was kind of a coast to coast. Well, drop the top coast part since there's not really trees up way uh, way up in the Arctic uh, per se, but. Um, Interesting pan-Canadian view of what's going on. So maybe for our listeners, um, since we don't have enough time to go through each province, <laughs> maybe what are some of those three key themes thinking of each province, every jurisdiction kind of doing the same thing, and then yet not kind of doing the same thing. And then, you know, what are the top three things you're surprised or interesting finds from that study? And then sure. maybe one of the things, if you were to, you know, be king of the castle and say, you know what, all you provinces, it's like I'm going to rule you all kind of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> this is how we're going to do it and just be quiet and and do what I tell you. So maybe start with that and share some thoughts on that study and the work you did.
1: Sure. So um I guess the the biggest trend that you notice when you look coast to coast is there seems to be a lot of hybrid approach. You know, that's it's not fully lidar in all jurisdictions they're still leveraging some Im- imagery to try to answer generally the species question and it's, used, it's some form of photo interp light or something like that uh, Ontario being the exception to that we'll, we'll get to that um, but the the idea of letting the technologies do what they do best right now and say lidar gives us great heights we don't need one height for a polygon we understand that Either we go to a full raster based or we can at least understand a a height distribution within a polygon and the value that that would give to an operations person. So that lesson learned is really is really key that let the technologies do what they do best. The other one is that they're starting to, some jurisdictions are ahead of this than others, but using the other satellite products to fill in the gaps of we tend to do these, you know, large scale every 10 year massive inventory efforts and then in between it's kind of like yeah there's we grow it forward we kind of just let it hang out and we province by province maybe we update fires the boundaries of which are done you know from a helicopter in some cases they're not they're not in in the same mapping effort we don't try to keep the fabric accurate all the way through the inventory cycle and that's changing now you're starting to see i mean sentinel is caught on people are starting to realize that that satellite system exists um And of course, Landsat, when they opened the archive in 2009, was a huge impetus to innovation because the best data is the one you can afford. And so when you had access to that time series, you could ask those questions. We're starting to see governments look back to 1984, which is sort of when the the latest, the the generation of Landsat that translates to today started. And you can look at that archive and say, what questions can we ask temporally that maybe would inform where we're going uh, going forward, or understanding our disturbance history or fire histories, you know that this is where we're getting to now is being able asking you know 50 years ago what happened is no longer a question of what's the paper record. It's what's the satellite image tell us, mm-hmm. and that's a very powerful opportunity that we can start to leverage. Um, so I'd say that's that's the second one, and then open data that varies by jurisdiction, but I think that's a critical piece to innovation because if the data is open then it's going to drive innovation, whether that's from the academic sector or whether that's from the private sector or both. It's if you just like you look at uh, GONB and you want to download any of the the LIDAR data, whether it's for teaching or because you get your hands on some data or that's just what you've got available, you can download the whole data set and you can start to leverage and play around with that and say, so I want to test 16 hit per square meter LIDAR. I don't have any here but they have some in New Brunswick so I can download that and test how does my algorithm work in that situation versus the lower density lidar in other jurisdictions or whatever the case might be and I think that's going to be key if you ask me what what's one thing I'd like to control across the country it would be embracing a full open data policy because if it's if it's available it's going to drive innovation and we're all going to win out of that um the other you know I, that, I think that'd be my number one the other one would be proper documentation to follow um that's you know <laughs> that varies widely and causes so many problems because i remember even even the the four band imagery we got for the ads 40 i'd walk in and see companies looking at the wrong band order thinking they're looking at rgb but it was in reverse and they said well, this looks like garbage and it's oh yeah because you're looking at the blue channel through the green yeah. like you got it in yeah. reverse yeah but that's funny no, <laughs> yeah, it's like, what was it? It wasn't communicated to them in a way that they could understand. And if you want to see the best documentation, to my mind across the country, it's Quebec, you look at their LiDAR derivative data set, it's like a 60 page manual, step by step, QGIS and ArcGIS, embrace both sides and say, you know, you're not because a lot of organizations use both. run into this i'm sure where i need to run a buffer i don't i don't need i don't want to pay for my staff to have another advanced license just to run a buffer i'm going to use qgis for that geoprocess and then bring it back into arc or whatever the case might be those sorts of silly things that or zonal statistics another example of you don't have the spatial analyst license when you run zonal statistics through qgis and bring it back in you you're off to the races so leveraging both sides of the toolbox um, you know, we've seen white box tools being developed uh, out of Southern Ontario, that's a fantastic tool set. The Orpheus image analysis uh, tools that bring in, you know, e-cognition like object based image analysis into a free, uh, free environment, the snap toolbox that gives you access to the random forest algorithms right in right in uh, QGIS, you, you know, this open open source environment is just blossomed, and come this June, uh, the next version of QGIS. It now has LIDAR support, but the next version has got a real LIDAR suite of tools built in. Your profile tools are being built into that now. We're going to start seeing that really having a place in these new LIDAR inventories.
0: For sure. For sure. Yeah, and absolutely right. Like some of the GIS analytics tools they become commodities in terms of buffer and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the open source data is probably a broader discussion that we'd end up on a three hour call, honestly, as we start yeah. unpacking <laughs> that great conversation there, but maybe uh, move us into Ontario. We kind of hinted at that. So uh, tell us more about what, you know, obviously, well, not obviously for some of our listeners globally, but Ontario's flying. They're in the program flying single yep. photon ladder. So maybe for our listeners uh you know share your understanding how do we get to the point where we're fine spl and not linear mode and then where we're at thinking of riffing off of that comment around open are we there where you think we should be and and i'm kind of goading you in some of these comments yeah yeah you you
1: you you want me to get in trouble but that's okay i don't mind (laughs) um so Uh, So for those that are interested in the Ontario Forest Inventory Program, I actually wrote a paper. It's an open access paper on the history of the forest inventory in in Ontario. So it goes through the entire history going back to when we did aerial timber sketching and all the way through the different iterations and what the policy drivers were. uh, And, you know, the the critical drivers around the, the class timber EA that drove the new inventory and the ecological variables coming into it. And, uh, and some of the warnings that used to be included in the inventory around it's it's a strategic level tool it's not an operational tool without some sort of calibration. We lost that through the class timber EA, but we didn't change our methodology so there was some some challenges of scope and application of that inventory at the wrong scale and then saying the inventory is wrong it's like well it's it's intended purpose was much higher level than where we were leveraging it. That was the real problem. So the new LiDAR that we're, u- we're getting, uh, single photon LiDAR or SPL, um, When when the province announced it, it was fairly new for this type of of acquisition in terms of the scale. I think Minnesota had done some or was in the process of doing some as well. Uh, But it's it's basically, they can fly higher so they can cover larger land bases. And we've got a lot of area to cover. So I think it's the only way they could pay the bill was to go to SPL. The trade-off being, we do have a bit of a mosaic patchwork of acquisition driven by smoke and that sort of thing. And I think people will just need to be very aware of the fact that some, some SFLs are going to have two or three years of LIDAR north to south, and it's not going to be in blocks. It's going to be in these sorts of ribbon patterns in some cases where a flight line was obscured by smoke and picked up the next year. And there, there could be some weird edge effects we run into. And it's just, just being aware of that when you start working with the data. Um, But it's big too. I mean, if you talk to folks like Resolute, they'll tell you they just put a petabyte server in on-prem uh, to be able to manage their land base and all the derivatives as they start leveraging this and drone technology. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, in in a lot of the province, we have good connectivity, but that's not the case everywhere. And uh, being able to download the data is a real challenge for some of those locations, uh, having worked in, you know, the the Ignaces and the Fort Francis area there's real pipeline challenges when it comes to broadband um i finished my master's i lived half an hour outside town and i finished it on dial-up internet um and it wasn't that long ago you know it was uh there's real connectivity challenges even around this area you don't have broadband uh available to everyone in within half an hour of thunder bay so are you going to have start are you
0: going to start having seizures if i mimic the dial up oh yeah exactly right like shuddering uh, right oh my god not that sound it's like not that dial-up sound oh that's 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 amazing that's amazing so definitely i I laugh because as i setting up this podcast you know i did my speed test you know close to a gigabit coming down oh yeah same right yeah twenty right (laughs) and then you're like dial-up it's like is this really an issue it's like Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, for sure. So fascinating. And even as we talk about uh, scale of data, maybe and even compute resources. I know right now, even in the data centers like of Microsoft Azure and other places, they they have capacity constraints because so many people are spooling up spinning up resources. And, and 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 I think last time I read some of these cloud providers had 60, 70% year over year growth. So the demand is there, whether it's cloud or on-prem, like people are buying stuff yeah. to handle that. So on the SBL side of things, uh, obviously you know a provincial jurisdiction—they're the the keepers. I was going to say gatekeepers, but they keep <laughs> the data and and moving things. Are you happy with where things are at? Do you think um, the, the the previous refresh cycle—you know—we've we've collectively as a community learned from it and we're positioned well for success, or do you think there's opportunities for uh, for growth? I'm sensing it's probably not technology. Like we got the tools to process this it's it's really more a question around like the
1: i think there's two things one the lack of photography is going to be a barrier for some folks i think that's going to surprise a lot of foresters who still rely on, on well they rely on aerial photos for everything right they're still leveraging the old the old, the last round of photos just for being able to understand context. And the one problem that I've run into, just to give you an example for the SPL, is a, what I call a false bottom problem. So, in a closed canopy understory uh, balsam fir stand, for example, um, you may not get ground penetration. And so that gets called the bottom and you get a misleading height. And so you're actually taking merchantable stands and calling them unmerchantable because you hit that false bottom. And without some photo base to try to give you some context, or maybe the last round told you it's two-tiered, some hint, it's very easy to miss that at a large landscape scale. And it's not to say that, you know, this can't work. It's just, that is one trade-off with spl we get a ton of upper canopy returns mid canopy we don't get a lot that's related to the green band and the solar noise question and then the ground returns we're getting a lot of artifacting in some places it's only in certain stand types but it's something we need to be aware of and grow through and figure out how do we identify this is there sort of a hint in the lidar that that exists and we can flag it um whatever the case might be but that's that's where i would start to worry as a forester now doing a strategic plan is am i bypassing merchantable wood because i'm artificially under reporting my heights at a landscape scale and the scope of the data is such that you can't comb every stand
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and we know where that story then goes oh this thing's like a pizza insert beep yeah that's exactly Manual beep right i'm not using this like didn't they do don't they know what they're doing and and yep. versus knowledge transfer exchange of information could fill that gap with other technology. So interesting there. So at the end of the day, like for me, it's always kudos to the province. They've moved forward. They made they made a decision. Yep. They're moving forward now in terms of knowledge transfer education, training. That's where there's Big the tent. opportunities. And so when we think about LiDAR, like again, it's like would you agree it's it's one of the game changing technology? Oh yeah yeah, I yet? think
1: I think it's gonna be huge for being able to improve a lot of the metrics that people are expecting to to get better like you know you're driving a sawmill uh, or you know again, I always go back to Resolute. I know I understand their business situation a little more. They have three mills that have different demands. And that's a perfect example where LIDAR is going to give them the ability to sort and understand and predict wood volume flows to each one of those facilities. That's a fantastic utilization of this technology. Um, and I think it is, I fully agree with you. I mean, I, we were joking before we started that the first time I learned about LIDAR, I brought a class to Hearst to a talk that you were giving Kevin. I think it was 2013. I was looking it up. Uh, I was way back, way back. It was the early days. And uh and seeing the the early work that you were doing, it was really interesting stuff. But we, you know, I I didn't have that same in Ontario. We haven't had that same history with lidar at a larger scale in terms of like the educational background like Quebec or out east has had, where they've it, it's been, it just matured to the point where they they now have um, a better understanding. We're getting there in Ontario, but it's going to be a learning curve as we come up, and that's why leaning on these other jurisdictions and taking the wins that they had is is going to be key. And then when I look at lidar inventory and I say, now what does that look like in like going forward? How do we leverage this or how do we improve our models? I think it's going to go hand in hand with the machines um, and tracking that information so that we get a constant feedback loop. You're seeing this in the Scandinavian countries now. There was an example of Komatsu doing full uh, full metrics of every tree they grab. They scan it and then they they just put two GPS units on a fixed boom that it gives you machine orientation. And by having that, they can use all the other information to infer exactly where the tree was. Now you can recreate what was our actual realized inventory. And I think if you fast forward in 10 years, I think that's going to be the the norm outside of some edge cases where contractors resist it. I really do, because that's going to be feedback. That's not going to solve all our inventory. That's going to solve our merchantable inventory.
0: Yeah, I I, love how you... I love how you did that, Alex. I was just going to sneak this a couple paragraphs then. and say, boom, all right. So let's unpack that for our listeners because uh, there's a lot of serious tech beyond just, oh, just two GPS things we infer. Oh, yeah, no uh, big deal. Uh, yeah. Let's unpack that a little bit more. So so we've been talking about airborne LiDAR to date. We're now talking yeah. about other pieces of, of the forest products, the timber harvesting supply chain side of things. So for our listeners there, is that really a future, this fusion of, you know, at a certain scale, you're using a certain type of GIS or geospatial product. And at some point, you're, it's not quite boots yep. on the ground, maybe boots on the pedal with machinery. What's that world look like? And then again, in the context of Silvicom, maybe bring it together because Silvicom is a big yeah. technology shop. It's got, you know, some horsepower on that side. Um, so what's that vision? Like, what can you share in terms of your vision of what that future looks like with the sure. whole landscape in terms of technology and people like drones bringing the drones i know you're, you're an expert in that space as well
1: right so so the the what you said there in terms of fusion i think is the key takeaway here and also scale um i think we need to stop thinking about inventory as being one scale and that is one challenge we run into when we talk to to folks is they think i need i need the inventory well okay what is your question and then let's give you the inventory to answer that question and so there's the strategic level the operational and then ultimately the individual tree level you start diving way down Um, and that's driven by different data products so whether we're talking about satellite derived landscape level questions for uh, habitat modeling that's one scale and then the 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 technological side of things um, so if you have got a machine when it grabs the tree and it does a whole scan and you know exactly where that tree was, and you've got aerial lidar that tells you what it predicted volume was, you can now say, okay, we predicted X, we got Y and over time we get millions and millions of measurements and we can do a feedback loop to really tighten up those predictions and understand not just what is our inventory predicting for, from an operational perspective, but how do we then correct for, uh, utilization? So, we're not just predicting the merchantable volume that is available, but utilization parameters. And we think the machines can operate in the following conditions, but he couldn't reach these trees. Why? We can start to ask those questions to tighten up our utilization understanding right. of the entire system. And then, if you want to fast forward even more, I presented this the, the day before at OFIA. There's a company called Air Forestry who is dreaming big thoughts, and it's pretty cool. They have an 80 kilogram drone with a felling head on it for for thinning they grabbed the tree from the top strip the branches off and cut it off and lift it out without any machine trails so now you think about site improvement or uh maybe black spruce harvesting where it's smaller trees that's a drone that could do individual tree lifting out no ground disturbance so that opens up our operability and that changes the entire game of logistics management now you've got a landing, a literal landing, mm-hmm. um, not just a, not just a, for all of that. Any people think hear that and think there's no way we could do that legislatively. Well, legislatively at, by the end of the year, beyond visual line of sight is going to be normalized, at least in low density population areas. And the weight restrictions are going up to almost 600 kilos for the drone delivery business. Huge. Yep. So that already is opening it up. And that, that trajectory is massive i mean i use the example of zipline drones they were delivered they they were delivering um COVID vaccines they delivered over a million COVID vaccines and flew 20 million miles of drone flights like 800 times around the earth that's where we are now that's not science fiction it's science fact and you look at that type of opportunity and you say if we put a landing into an area with good roads, like Northeastern Ontario. Good example, right? Where, where road building costs are a big problem. Most of the harvesting Mm -hmm. is done in the winter time. We start talking about soil carbon considerations, compaction, all of those sorts of questions. What does that mean? If you look at a stand and say, we can now do aerial harvesting. Maybe that's not today, but fast forward, a LIDAR driven inventory at an ITC level, that becomes a possibility, at least in some locations. And low population densities go hand in hand with where we operate. So the risk profile is hand in hand. It doesn't speak to the Southern Ontario management necessarily, although with species at risk considerations and all the challenges that they have with building roads, it might actually be an environment that is conducive to it. And this system does handle hardwoods. And so it's, it's thinking big thoughts. It's thinking maybe that's possible or some form of that or a hybrid system, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that Absolutely. we can see that. it, So I, I think that's going to be really cool to see that yeah, um, in some form. And if, and if they start proving it out in Sweden, we've got the ground to justify it here. And what we have that they don't is even less population density. So we have low risk areas where we can go to prove out this technology, where if it goes rogue, it can't reach a population center by the time it runs out of fuel. Yeah, And that's the advantage that we've got with the big land base that we have is we can start to ask these questions or and test it out and prove it out and say, um, what does this mean for ground compaction? Roads planning becomes a very different question.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I know a bunch of our listeners are probably, you know, listening or watching this <laughs> going like, guys, this will never happen. And, and, and for me, I always say it's a lot easier to come up with the reasons why we can't do it. Versus come to the table with uh, you know how are we going to do it and 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 there, there's who knows what the future looks like but it, yep. it's crazy exciting and and even this is where I joke some people ask me like are you are, do you see autonomous like harvesting machines forestry machines come in I'm like like yeah like does that scare yeah. scare the bejesus of yeah, you i'm like no they're like why not because now i got flying drones flying around with things that can cut my head off versus at least that ginormous thing that piece of iron <laughs> i can hear rumbling down <laughs> and run faster than it versus a flaming drone like oh my god yep. man, we won't go into our terminator scenarios here uh, so very cool on that front um Anything surprising you on the drone side? We kind of touched it. You mentioned some companies are doing that. Um, definitely, as we watch the landscape, lots of uh, drone forestry companies raising some VC dollars and getting in the space. Whether it's coming through climate tech dollars or some other avenue, at some point they maybe all mesh together. That it's forestry, but maybe drive driven by ESG or some other component. But yeah. um, aside from the you know the the lidar, we've been talking about airborne lidar. You know the drones and other. Things. Any other? cool technologies like thinking of the one three five year time frame what like we kind of gone all over the place like without yeah. even asking you took this <laughs> one year to 20 to 5 to 16 and then and, and so you pick it out what range you want to work in but what all gets right. you excited
1: in the morning So so let me let me reel it in to sort of frame it, because like you said, you always run into that skepticism. And I say in 2013, there was a TED talk about drone delivery possibilities and it's now 2022 and it's happening at scale, including in North America for Walmart in Arkansas, uh, same company, Zipline Drones. So I always say you look at that trajectory, it is coming. Um, Planet is another example daily monitoring of the entire world, whether it's a line scanner of the world, you can ask daily questions now multiple times a day in since April 2017 I've been involved in their planet education and research program so unlimited worldwide access to it, which is pretty awesome being able to ask any question you want anywhere in the world and challenging students. When I look forward to satellite data, seeing hyperspectral, that's the next big one that's going to be a driver for us to be able to fuse with LiDAR and ask different questions. You're seeing uh, German and uh, German company NMAP has just announced the 30 meter resolution that's going to align largely with Landsat, 230 spectral bands, full sphere. You know, we can really geek out about why that's cool, but you think about being able to monitor facility level carbon emissions, being able to monitor, do species level inferences, uh, insect outbreaks, you're seeing that. Uh, Wyvern which is a Canadian company is a satellite yeah. company based in Alberta they're launching at the end of this year one meter visual near infrared and then five meter sphere with 30 spectral channels that's a, a fantastic Canadian uh, technology story and then Planet is their carbon mapper project with the with California where they're launching that I mean you look at that and then the recent job ads around hyperspectral they're going to be in that space as well so hyperspectral where we go beyond the four bands into the very so people always ask what does hyperspectral mean and i say well right now we take a lot of information and average it together and we kind of call it red and we say this stuff so is all kind of blue right but we miss a lot of nuance it's it's an average and so what hyperspectral gives us is the ability to take very fine slices and say instead of averaging all this data together to me it's the spectral version of lidar we're not averaging the height of the block We're not averaging the spectral signature of the block. We're taking very narrow slices and asking individual questions, and we can build indices to give us far more insights than we've got today. I mean, in, in jurisdictions not driven by uh, by glacial history, biogeoprospecting becomes a factor for the mining industry because you see the uh, associated metals with gold deposits being taken up into the vegetation. Eucalypts will take up gold into the vegetation and hyperspectral gives you the ability to see that. Um, so I think that's gonna be critical. Open source technology is gonna be a big driver. Um, you know i always say open source and and paid software go hand in hand it's not one or the other it's both because they drive innovation um it's it's it opens up opportunity for small organizations and it drives innovation you see tools come out in the open source community and eventually once it's stable or makes enough sense it gets adopted by the paid software where you need it to be stable and work and not spend half your day you know, swearing at Python for not
0: working today. Um,
1: so you know, yeah,
0: it's that sure. it's that whole balancing act. Um, and and but, for our listeners, for context, when Alex has swear, he's not swearing at you. Right, you're shortwave infrared. You're oh, just yeah. arg- <laughs> happening here, right? So, oh, and I say man. this again for my sister, love you, Jen. But I know she always asks, like, you got to slow down with some of these people. It's like I don't know anything about your space. It's like I'm trying to follow, and I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll try my best. So a lot, lots there. Um, I'm curious because yeah, you're still teaching are yeah. you seeing a trend with foresters you know as you get you can sense the excitement in your voice is that translating to the students like are they connecting the dots equally as well I'm going like yes holy s-h-i exclamation r-t it's like like I want to get yeah. in this space are you seeing that trend that generational uh, shift absolutely I think um I mean so when we grew up, I would say
1: for us, technology was always something that you had to kind of fight your way through. It didn't it didn't just work. We weren't the app generation where things you press it and it just worked the first time. It's like if it worked at all, it's like, oh, excellent. Um, and so there, it's overcoming a little bit of that. Like I made them open a command line window for the first time. They'd never seen that before. So basic stuff to understand batch processing. Um, but the excitement is there when they start to be able to define a problem and then execute it. And they're really seeing that. So with Planet, you imagine you're a student now in fourth year and you're tasked with your term project is you have access to imagery everywhere, every day in the entire world. And you can download as much of it as you want and ask any question. They, yeah, I get all kinds of weird uh, analyses from looking at how is the ice changing on Lake Superior day over day? to uh, flooding in Bangladesh, to um, cutting and thinning from below in the the high forests of uh, South America. Students are excited when they get access to that kind of information. And then they see opportunities like full-time drone pilot. Two former students are now full-time drone pilots. That's all they do every day. When it's nice weather, they're out flying. When it's crummy weather, they're inside processing or doing planning. Like that is a full-time career now. And you say that to them and they realize, wow, I can leverage everything that I've done here to answer real questions, but I still get to play out in the field as well and live that balanced life. And I think especially a lot of foresters, at least for their first 10 years, 15 years, want that real balance of half office. That's always a big push.
0: Yeah. And so and,
1: uh... that's, that's been a real exciting thing to see. And, and it is translating. They're asking more complex questions, uh, but it does require changing the curriculum. So this was the first time I taught LIDAR uh, as the, the advanced course was all LIDAR this year for the first time. Wow. And so that was a real pivot by distance on their home computers. So you're having to leverage whatever you can. Some of them are Mac i I was a Mac person, but in this space, it's a real pain to be a Mac person. Um, sure. so, so it led to some challenges that way, but it's been really fun. Um, and then you see them now asking new questions as they go into their career and they still reach out and uh, stay in contact with them. And so you get to see where they go with their career and how they've leveraged the stuff you've, you've taught them, which has been really cool to, to, to see. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, I think that
0: yeah, it's amazing. All, all you can do as a professor, right, is kind of plant the seed and and see where they, they take it. But it is rewarding to see them spread their wings. And who knows, one, three, five, yeah. ten years. As you said, even your ranger school, you know, reconnecting down the road. It's a small, small community. So kudos for you bringing that passion to teaching the the next generation so thinking about as we're looking to wind down thinking about our listeners yep. might be going okay like what else does silvacom do you guys have been talking sure. you've been geeking out um <laughs> you know what else is silvacom about you know if i want to engage with him like like sure maybe give a pitch on silvacom and all the cool thing. i know what they do silvacom does but for our listeners like yeah share all the cool wicked things that you guys do
1: yeah, so I'll try to cover sort of the, the broad strokes of it. And then you, obviously people can reach out if they have specific questions. So we've got a, a number of different verticals uh, involved in the company. Um, and so when you look at the, the two software verticals, for example, used by Forest Industry, one is a forest management software. It's called Silvacom FMS uh, Forest Management Software. Uh, and it's a cloud-based system that's designed to try to reduce some of the friction points for uh, GIS management, uh, saving time and effort in completing their planning activities, and managing all of their digital assets. Um, and that's a Canada-wide product. And Zach Cole at uh, at Silvacom is the, the person that would be more than happy to talk your ear off on, on that product and the offerings. And it does actually tie in with your, your company as well, Kevin. We are so FMS is inventory product agnostic. And so we're tied right in with Lim Afrids and delivering that through FMS to, to clients as well. So it's, it's not tied to just one inventory solution. If you want to try raster-based, you want to do, change the way that it operates, it's, it's agnostic to that and can leverage all of it. The other one is uh, called Jambo. And it's a product for organizations to manage all their stakeholder engagement, whether that's uh, local citizens committees, Indigenous community uh, work like that, in uh, associated commitments. And it's used by a lot of forestry clients across Canada and uh, some international clients as well. And Ward Ferguson is the one that can, can lead people uh, and help them understand the full potential there. That's sort of your one-stop shop, being able to manage all of those disparate communications and showing things like for you know, your, your FSC commitments. Uh, how, did you do consultation? How, where did you do that? Where's the proof of all of that? It's sort of like Salesforce if Salesforce was designed for, for, you know, the resource sector and we are sort of tagline internally and externally is uh, built by foresters for foresters. Um, and it's that, that lens of it, working uh, for the day-to-day challenges, and we understand what those challenges are. And then I'm part of the professional services uh, vertical, which is more your traditional consulting work, but it's um, spatial modeling, it's inventory development, it's leveraging all these different inventory solutions, whether they are um, EFIs or full raster-based inventories, ITCs, whatever the inventory input is, it's how do we get that to work in the policy framework? And that's actually a big challenge in across Canada is that hasn't sure. been fully thought through in all jurisdictions is, you know, uh, we don't have a policy framework that's designed to ingest these inventory products, um, or they expect a full polygon inventory in some cases. And, you
0: know,
1: it, we, we, yeah, we can draw lines on the map, but do they mean anything anymore? Do, what sure. is, you know, is that just topographic break lines? Like, why are we drawing those lines? Um, So that's going to be a challenge but policy always takes longer than technology that's, that's forever been a trend and I don't see that going away. It's figuring out right now how do we take this fantastic data and still make it meet a policy framework so we're doing that right now with force management plans and, and as well as spatial modeling optimization which there's been, you know, a bit of a history of that in Ontario, but there hasn't been as much as there is in other jurisdictions where they're far more volume or or area-based limited. So they have to optimize. We just have this tradition of, well, if it's not there, I'll swap it over here kind of a thing, right? It's this endless wood basket, but, but with the goal in Ontario to be to maximize the AAC by 2030, we may start seeing the pressures there to, to bring that optimization in, which will, the lidar inventory is well positioned to help feed into.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, thinking of like pro tips, are 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 people who are listening to this 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 episode, this show, or watching, I should say, and they say, "Hey, like, totally cool, dude, listening to Alex." It's like, yeah, a lot. Like, obviously, knowledge base here available for people to tap into. Um, pro tips for getting started, like if they're interested in lidar drones or whatever that may be, are there certain common things you've seen where? people just kind of get tripped up or maybe they're asking the wrong questions. Any pro tips you'd share with the community? Uh,
1: I'd say be willing to reach out on LinkedIn and just have a conversation. Like uh, people in this space are very friendly um and we're pretty willing to share things like we're not going to share the secret sauce of how our exact software solution works but if someone reaches out to me and says i'm really interested in lidar can you point me to some good tutorial materials like that's very easy to have that conversation and and get people going and i don't i don't i think that is universal of pretty much everyone you've interviewed to date i think that is a, a universal trend in this digital forestry community it's a it's a big small town i like to say and uh, we you know it might be a big geography but we're all willing to sit around and chat and and share things it's not this you know uh it's not antagonistic it's it's very much let's let's find a solution and figure out what can work and so someone that's interested uh, just be willing to reach out and have that conversation um and then dive in with both feet and don't be afraid for your computer to seize up a few times it's going to happen in the early days of it so
0: (laughs) yeah smoke is good you can use your computer to heat your house yeah exactly yeah yeah (laughs) So hey man, awesome to talk with you. I loved it. Um, again, it's been great. I have not had to ask too many questions. It's it's refreshing just letting someone run with their passion and share their thoughts and experiences. So as we close down for people who are listening and they want to get in touch with you, I know you've talked with some, uh, shared some of the names from the Silvacom team, but obviously they're, you're the first guy to, to ping and yeah. you can open the doors into the Silvacom family. But What's the best way to get a hold of you? Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, website, a TikTok? I, who knows? What, what's the best way?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I considered a TikTok channel. I guess that could be entertaining, but no, not quite. Um, so I'll say uh, email email uh, is uh, alex at silvacom.com or just going to the website. You can you can find our contact details there. LinkedIn is another great one. Like I said, uh, don't be shy to reach out and connect. Um, it's uh, always willing to have a conversation and chat with people and and share experiences and, uh, and just chat in general. So, and I really appreciate you having me on here, Kevin. It's been fantastic.
0: It's awesome. So for our listeners, Alex, A-L-E-X dot Billick, B-I-L-Y-K at silvacom.com. So feel free to reach out. Thanks so much for carving off some time to, to talk with me, share some of your experiences. It was super cool. Now I know everyone's either driving or walking. I'm like, Oh my God, is there a drone up there with going to come down, you know, exciting time. So awesome. As always appreciate the time we spend together and chat and looking for the next time we can uh, see each other in person and, and continue. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Cool. Thanks very much.